The notes for this study are found in the 19th Psalm. They are the notes for this study. <laughs> Psalms number 19. I was thinking as I was putting this together, you know, I think this might be one of the most incredible, amazing Psalms. And it's hard to say that because they're all so good, but some are really better than others. And as I was doing some background research for this, I found uh, some notes that C.S. Lewis had said, and he thought this was the best psalm. So I was surprised that I said something that uh, someone so intelligent, a literary giant for sure, and C.S. Lewis is not speaking as an exegete or someone trained in hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, but he knows literature for sure. And all of the Bible is literature. It's just sacred and anointed and inspired, and it's authored by another world. Uh, I was going to tell you this at some time, uh, and you may hear it again, but one of the things that makes uh, reading Scripture so important, seeing how we're talking about Lewis and uh, C.S. Lewis being such a master of the literary style, uh, you know, you could read his books and you can get something out of it, but uh, it's not like he can help us to understand. When you read the scripture, it's the only book that the author is present with you. Now, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, that just got me a little... <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like it when I'm awestruck. I like it when I'm taken aback by... Uh, the magnitude of how glorious and big and truly awesome God is. And this psalm will certainly open up the door to our, to our understanding. So let's read the whole thing, and then I'll come back and make some uh, passing comments. I told you when we were starting this that we're, we're, it, it, it's kind of like we're flying over a mountain range. We're not taking time to stop and exegete every verse, although... We could do that. Well, maybe I couldn't, but a real Bible scholar could, could stop on every verse and do a whole hour just on each verse. That's very possible. John Galvin could certainly have done that. But uh, we're just flying. We're flying. And, and I thought this week, because there's so much heavy content, we're flying in a Concorde this week. You remember the Concorde? <laughs> Too bad it's out of business. I, I would have liked to take a ride on that thing. But uh, for some reason, they uh, stopped, stopped flying it. So... Let's look to the Word of God. If I stop in the middle of this session and pray, pray with me, because sometimes when we're reading the Word of God, we may just be moved to just worship and say, Lord, you're so wonderful. Lord, how is it that you've given me ears to hear and eyes to see? So if you see me having a little spasm in between, it's a, it's a glory spasm. It's a good one. <laughs> if I fall over and my eyes roll back in my head, well then, uh, <laughs> please <laughs> call some professional help. All right. Lord, open our ears to your word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That's an amazing statement right there. We're going to come back to that. I'm just so excited I can't help but annotating in between while I'm reading this. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Hallelujah. 
More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Doesn't that do something for you? I mean, uh, I've read this psalm all of my Christian life, and it still gets to me. And I'm glad that uh, this sacred literature can still get to me. Uh, well, we have three obvious divisions here. The first six verses have to do with the uh, eloquent heavens, which is what's known as natural revelation. And then we have the uh, perfect Torah, that's what's known as special revelation between verses 7 and 11. And then we have our humble response, or it ought to be a humble response when we are exposed to this, this awesome King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can everybody hear me all right? Is this thing loud enough? Okay. Chuck, hear me all right? Okay. So let's look at uh, three obvious divisions here. Uh, natural revelation. You know what this is. Everybody can see it. And we're going to read a reference at the Apostle Paul, two of his references in the book of Romans, where he hearkens back to this. We've often wondered, or some people have wondered, they've talked to me as a pastor about it. They said, well, what about all these people in Africa or Papua New Guinea or somewhere in the backside of the jungle somewhere and they never heard? They've seen this. They've seen this. And uh, a, a missionary evangelist friend of mine who went to a lot of these unreached people groups told me once, he said, I've never been to a group of people who weren't worshiping something. It's in our nature to want to worship something. We need to tell them who it is, but uh, we're naturally religious people. We want to make a connection. If, if, if they have no connection, they may look up on a, a starry night and they'll, they'll be so blown away that, and they'll worship the universe or the sun or uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, if you've ever seen Mount Rainier. That's a pretty impressive sight. The Indians used to worship that. In fact, the, the original Indian name of Mount Rainier was Tahoma. The mountain is God. It's an impressive mountain, but I mean, from space, it doesn't even barely look like a zit. I mean, you know, it's, it's <laughs> our planet, our planet. You get far enough back from our planet and our solar system, you could hardly see this little blue marble that we're on. So uh, we realize that this natural revelation is meant to uh, connect us with the Lord. And that's why David writes inspired as he does. In the next section, uh, verses 7 through 11, we have the word before us. This is special revelation. And because this is written a thousand years BC, this is specifically written to Jews. Uh, we benefit, you know, of course, we, we benefit from a lot of Jewish scripture, but uh, uh, David is referring to the Torah, all of those things. And we'll uh, hop, skip, and jump through a couple of those things. How, how uh, glorious, how uh, anointed, inspired is the only way that we could explain how he describes the word of the Lord, the judgments, the statutes, the precepts, all elevating. And as I told you a couple of weeks ago, it is our opinion and reverence thereof, of the word of God, it being inspired, that really matters in our Christian growth, whether we're going to make it or not. You know, if, if, if your estimation of the Bible is down here, and you're so over it, and you say, well, you know, nobody could understand that, you're already losing. And that's not something that's going to help you. So we got the special revelation, and then we have the witness within us. This is the goose bumper right here. Our response to his divine revelation. 
Okay, and, and then I just have another, it, it, really we're restating the same thing in different words. The natural revelation reveals the heavens under the dominating influence of the sun. It reveals the glory of God. And I got a, a Galileo quote you're going to like. And then the special revelation reveals God's will and transforms lives, right? Enlightens the eyes. No other literature can do that, okay? And then our response, the confession of sin, hopefully, and the desire to be accepted. So, uh, just so we don't forget, having to do with uh, this, this point here about the heavens under the dominating influence of the sun. You know, Galileo was uh, back in his time, ahead of his time, as far as for... Uh, the things that he discovered, a very primitive uh, telescope. But he was the one who put forth the proposition that uh, our solar system was a heliocentric cosmology, which just means that the sun was the center and not the earth. And, of course, you could read Bible verses, you know, especially where Joshua says, Sun, stand thou still. And uh, anyway, Galileo got in trouble with the Catholic Church. Uh, they kicked him out because they thought he was going against the Word of God. I applaud the Catholics for being so faithful to the Word of God, but the scriptures are not an astrological textbook, and it's, it's, it's literature, it's history. And, you know, back at Joshua's time, even up until just recently, Galileo, we didn't know things about the universe, but here's what Galileo said I think you'll find interesting. And it really is impressive how, uh, as the heavens are uh, uh, declaring the glory of God, and I think it's this, what verse here? Yes, uh, in them, this is verse 4, their line has gone out through all the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. So we have this, uh, this glorious tabernacle of the sun, our immediate solar system. And uh, here's what Galileo said, before I forget, because it's not in my notes. He said, the sun, I'm roughly quoting now Galileo. He said, the sun, even with all the planets depending upon it, can still ripen a vine of grapes as if it had nothing else to do. Isn't that good? <laughs> it takes an astronomical mind to make a statement like that. He sees the, the huge impact that the sun has on planets that are spinning around, and yet he's looking at that vine of grapes and saying, isn't that something? That that sun that's doing all that can still ripen a vine of grapes as if it had nothing else to do. And the same goes for your tomatoes and your squash and whatever else you got growing, that we depend on the sun, do we not? So, the world around us, the word before us, and the witness within us. Uh, in this, and this is a singing psalm. It's made to be sung. Uh, God's people celebrate His law. And uh, I'm not going to sing it for you today, but there is a, a, a contemporary chorus that's... Uh, made out of the middle portion of this, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. Like I said, I'm not going to sing it for you. We, we don't want to offend anybody, and it would be <laughs> offensive. I'm looking for where I was. All right, it's a singing psalm. The Torah as the supreme revelation of himself and we see how the creation speaks of its maker in the first six verses, then how the Mosaic law addresses the soul, and then in the last uh, verses from 12 to 14, the humble response that this calls for. So, the heavens declare the glory of God. Can you say amen to that? I mentioned uh, West Texas before. If you've ever been out around Big Bend on a clear night, man, that's got to have an effect on you. I mean, he, here we are with the light pollution around a city, and, and we don't see as much. You get out there. I'm a city guy. I grew up around a lot of city pollution lights, and uh, I've never seen anything like that. Chuck? Well, about a dust storm through West Texas. Well, that's, uh, I suppose that's a different type of glory. Uh, <laughs> one of my best friends grew up in West Texas, and I, and I don't believe I've ever heard him describe a dust storm as the glory of the Lord. I've heard him describe it in some other ways, but <laughs> never. <laughs> Indeed, right. Here's a guy from West Texas. <laughs> he described the gritting in your teeth of the sand when, when it ends up in your Cheerios. I mean, it's, 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 sand is everywhere. <laughs> I don't think everyone was gritting on sand and said, well, glory to God, <laughs> as I'm wearing the enamel off my teeth. I, I, I don't think people say that. So it proclaims his handiwork. Think about this. 
What the psalmist says 3,000 years ago is still all we need to know about the universe. You know, our government and other worldly outfits, they, uh, man, they want to send, uh, you, know, you know, like we, uh, well, Chuck was involved in this, put a man on the moon. And uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm very simple. I don't know how uh, advanced or, you know, how much you want to know about the moon. I mean, you know, how many billions of dollars did we spend? We sent a little rover up there, guys walked around, you know, uh, they got that. Uh, isn't there one of those things on Mars right now, Chuck? Isn't there one of them little dune buggies on Mars that's uh, not yet? I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, one of these days there will be. They're going to send a dune buggy up there, and it's going to have an electric arm, and it's going to reach it. Garland, do you know? Do we have one of those dune buggies on, on Mars? Well, they're going to, and then they're going to pick up some dirt and shake it up and say, well, there ain't no worms up here. And, you know, okay, so they'll find out after billions of dollars. And I tell people, all I need to know about the moon is that it's a nightlight. It's a little light for the night. That's all it is. Uh, and yet people are, oh, I want to know, you know, and, and of course, to hear the ridiculous cockamamie things that uh, uh, evolutionists and, and, and atheists will make up instead of just believing what the word says. Listen, folks, this is a very serious thing here. You don't know how fortunate you are if you are sitting here this morning and you believe the word of God and you have no problem with this. You have no idea how fortunate you are as a matter of fact, I would be willing to say that you see the glory of God in everything because that's what Christians do. We see the, you know, we could look at the solar system. That's impressive. The heavens declare the glory of God. I've been impressed. I had me a glory spell just looking at an orange. <laughs> I'm a simple person, but I, I look at that orange. I love orange. It's one of my favorite colors. And that, that skin, and then you open it up, and it's got almost this little globe. You know, it's got these lines in it, and you could break them apart, and the juice that's in there, and it hangs off the end of a branch that was pollinated by some bee or something. I mean, all this glorious fabric of, I have me a glory spell just over an, an orange. <laughs> Don't get me started on grapefruit. I mean, I've, <laughs> grapefruit, apples. I mean, <laughs> They say, look at them. It's, oh, God, you're so good. The juice is running down your face. So we don't want to get too carried away. We're supposed to be talking about the heavens, declare. And we got off on the moon being a nightlight. But for those who demand more, looking for some explanation, which deletes a holy God, is insufficient at best. And it's pathetic overall. This is general Revelation, it's able to be seen by all, and it reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says, and I'm going to read this for you. This is in chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans, for the invisible things. Now, he's talking about invisible things now. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen. Now, we're not going to take time to exegete this and figure this out. He says the invisible things are clearly seen. Well, if it's invisible, how can you see it? I told you, we're not going to take time. To, I'm just reading the verse, okay? The invisible things are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, no one's going to say, I, 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 I didn't know. There was a guy, I'm trying to think of who it was. He was, uh, he was a famous atheist, and... Uh, Maybe his name will come to me, but it really doesn't matter. I mean, who remembers famous atheists anyway? Uh, we, we pity them. And uh, somebody was uh, talking to him, and he's talking about how, you know, there's no God and all this other pathetic stuff. And he said, uh, well, the interviewer asked this atheist. He said, well, if, if, if you are wrong and you find yourself after death and you stand before the Lord, what would you say to him? And here's what the guy said. He said, I would say, sir... You're not going to say, sir, to God. You'll be on your face, prostrate in worship. Oh, what an awesome thing. Just try to put yourself there. No, this guy's thinking, well, I'm going to talk to the Lord and say, sir. And here's what he said. Why have you taken such great measures to hide yourself? What a, pardon my language, what an idiot. The heavens declare the glory of God. But as I was saying before, you probably see the glory of God in everything. Now I remember where I was because I got off. I, I had a little orange spell there. 
We see the glory of God in everything, and yet there's some people, maybe you know them, maybe you're related to them, maybe you work with them, they can't see the glory of God in anything. And that's the difference between us and them. What made the difference? The grace of God. Why is it you're sitting here? God's been good to you and me. And for that, we rejoice together because we can see this. <laughs> you know, there's other people that will read this. Like I said, their Bible's down there. <laughs> They're not even impressed at all. Day unto day, utter a speech. Night into night, show it not. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I got a juicy little quote here from John Calvin. We always like to hear what he says because he always ha has something. In this verse here, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And I just lifted this out of one of his commentaries. This is part of his commentary on verse 3. And he's talking about how we communicate to one another. We all have languages. But here is a language that God communicates to everybody. And here's what Calvin said about it. And even though a man could speak all languages, he could not speak to a Grecian and a Roman at the same time. For as soon as he began to direct his discourse to one, the other would cease to understand him. David, therefore, by making a tacit comparison, enhances the efficiency, the efficacy of the testimony which the heavens bear to the Creator. The import of his language is different nations differ from each other as to language, but the heavens have a common language to teach all men without distinction, nor is there anything but their own carelessness to hinder even those who are most strange to each other, who live in the most distant parts of the world from profiting, as it were, at the mouth of the same teacher. Now, Calvin is... I'm blown away just as I read. I mean, I read his commentaries and I say, I mean, I feel like I'm such an idiot because he's so up there and his commentaries are so lofty. And even in this one little paragraph that I just lifted, that one uh, uh, observation that he made, for us to realize that there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard and we know how complicated communication is for us, yet the Lord speaks to everybody and everybody gets it even if they're in one of those unreached people groups that the Wycliffe Bible translators haven't gotten to yet, they don't have a written language. All they do is speak with grunts and clicks and, and other stuff. They have nothing written. They have no way to communicate. Yes, God has reached them. That's enough to make you shout. I mean, you know, and I don't mean shout out of order. Just get excited and say, oh, hallelujah. At least some of us may want to do that. So, and then he talks about a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, which is a, you know, it's a, you know, bridegroom's feeling pretty good, you know? You know, this guy comes out of a chamber, hey, man, I'm the man, you know, and of course he's got his eye on the woman, but he's the man, and he's, he's thinking about everything, and the rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. So, you get the idea of, of the uh, ostentatious display of God's glory through this natural revelation that he's giving us. And then he says, his going forth is from the ends of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. There's nothing hid from the heat thereof. So this is a, uh, a, glorious, a glorious passage, and I, uh, I love it. How much more accountable are we for that which he clearly has shown us his glory? Now, for you and I, we do have a higher level of accountability. The Lord will judge us, and judgment day is going to be perfect. I've heard all these arguments and people say, well, you know, you Christians think that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Well, what, what, what about this? What about this? It's almost as if they're standing in judgment over God Almighty. Let me tell you something. When that judgment day comes, we will say, we will all agree. If we can all see each other on that time, we'll all nod. You can say, Brother Paul, you were right. Remember that Sunday school class? You were right. Here's what we're going to agree on. It's absolutely perfect in every way. No one will be able to complain and say, yeah, I really don't like the way he handled that. No, we will say, yes, Lord, thou art worthy. And everything will be so perfect. It's, it's going to be perfect. And I've also told people, you know, they say, but you go to a Presbyterian church now. I said, yes, I am. And I happen to like it. I love it when they ask me, is that a good church? I say, no. And of course, say, what's wrong with it? <laughs> I said, no, it's, it's not a good church. It's a great church. It's a great church. <laughs> then, of course, they, oh, well, <laughs> I thought he was going to tell me something wrong. No, it's a great church, and I love being here. Of course, the first thing they want to know about, yeah, well, uh, 
a predestination. And I say, you know what, I'm not sure that anybody's really totally got that dialed in and figured out. And then I tell them the same thing that I just told you. Better off, let me tell you what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon, who was also questioned about the same thing, Spurgeon being a pretty sharp Calvinist, he said, uh, someone was saying, well, well, how do you reconcile free will and, and foreordination and predestination? And Spurgeon said, they're friends. You don't have to reconcile friends. And he said, they're kind of like two railroads. If you're standing on a railroad track, and that's a straight track, and you can see it, those rails seem to come together way down the line. And he said, that's pretty much how it's going to come together. So there may be some things that are out of our, beyond our purview. Isn't that what uh, Muller said all the time? Beyond my purview, out of my purview. Can't get there, don't know it. There's some things that we will not know or fully comprehend. And quoting Calvin again, he said, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. There's some things that we're just not going to know. But thank God that we could be on this side of grace and be able to worship him and see with the psalmist what a glorious universe this is that displays the glory of my heavenly creator. And even if you're inside with the sniffles, you can still have yourself a good glory spell just looking at an orange. Take my advice. It'll work. <laughs> or an apple. Or uh, how about grapes? Oh, we could just go on and on. Yes, it's amazing, the juicy little things of God's grace that he gives us. And we do pity those who can't look out on a clear night away from the pollution and just see. And uh, see, this divine speech, we're still on the first one, we're fixing to get into the second. This divine speech goes out to all humanity, yet speech is not heard. But language as this, and I don't know who originally said this, but language as this is not so much academically communicated, it's better felt than telt. Like I said, grammatically, that may be an abomination. If the English teacher is here, please don't chastise me. I never was good with English, but it is better felt than telt, and you kind of know what I'm talking about. Now, yeah, just one more thing before we go. The Apostle Paul makes a direct reference to the Romans, and this is in chapter 18 of the epistle to the Romans, and he's referring to verse number 4. Let me find this for you right quick. Romans chapter 10, verse number 18, that says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. And here the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, Israel, and they will be without excuse. And of course, all of us will be without excuse because their line's gone out through all the earth, all the time, everywhere. It's all over the place. Now, from this first thing of God uh, declaring his glory, uh, this general revelation, we move into special revelation, which is, and has been called the, uh, the Torah. It's referring to the Torah. And all of these things that uh, David mentions here, the law of the Lord is perfect. All these things referring to the word of the Lord. He uses all these uh, uh, synonyms. That's, yeah, the homonym is the thing that sounds the same, right? Yeah, it, synonyms. It, it, it just, they, they all represent the word, the law of the Lord. Talk about the Bible. The testimony, again, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, even the fear of the Lord is referring to the written revelation. Enduring for, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And more are they to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. And in some of the uh, scholarly background I was reading, there's references here, and David knew about gold, and th th there's a reference that this was the type of gold that was not just gold raw nuggets that they found, but it was highly refined and purified. He's saying, and you may say, you know, <laughs> David, don't you think you're getting a little bit carried away? I mean, is the Bible that good? Oh, you bet your boots. It's that good and better. More to be desired than gold because of where it leads us, what it does for us now. Uh, I don't know what I'd do. If I didn't have the Bible and if I didn't have faith in the Lord, I guess that's one of the things about being one of God's precious chosen ones. I can't see living any other way. And I don't know that uh, you could either. I mean, could you find yourself as, a, as an atheist questioning, looking out on a starry night and saying, eh, wonder what my horoscope says. <laughs> People actually worship the creation. They're looking for their guidance by the stars rather than going to the one who made the stars. And you have to admit, that's, that's really a, a pathetic 
a pathetic substitute. And it's prohibited by the Lord. Don't be looking to the stars and astrology to get your, uh, uh, to get your marching orders. I like when people have asked me, sometimes if they don't know I'm a pastor and we're in a mixed multitude and we're talking, and they say, oh, I read my horoscope this morning. Did you read yours? I say, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. What did it say? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I said, I'm good. <laughs> because my delight is in the law of the Lord. And they don't, for some reason, they don't want to talk anymore. So... <laughs> They were looking for something from some demon-possessed uh, syndicated writer sitting up in some office in Chicago who's uh, uh, telling your fortune and, well, this is what, oh, you're a Virgo? Well, this is what's going to happen. You, you're Capricorns? You better watch out. Oh, what a bunch of Tommy rot. It's just pathetic and it's ridiculous. When we have the law of the Lord, which is perfect, we have these statutes that are right. And there's a line here. I love this line. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We don't have time to pick apart all of these, but let's just consider enlightening the eyes. Have you ever been reading the Bible and you felt like your eyes were enlightened and it helped you to see yourself? Now, that's the good part. <laughs> Once you saw yourself, that's the bad part. <laughs> I didn't like what I saw. <laughs> I remember right after my conversion, and I had a pretty dramatic conversion because the Lord plucked me out of a hell-bound lifestyle as an insane prodigal son. It was God who did it. It wasn't me. God plucked me out of that miry clay. Uh, I remember when I started reading the Bible, I, I, would, I, I loved the Proverbs, still do. And I was reading in the Proverbs, and I got to chapter 23. <laughs> and I, talk about your eyes being enlightened. I said, this guy's talking about me. <laughs> He was describing me. And if, you, if you're familiar with the 23rd chapter of Proverbs, it's not very flattering. <laughs> it's really pathetic. I said, this guy's talking about me. He knows exactly, this is exactly what I've done. My eyes were enlightened. That was part of my love affair, which continues to today. And I love the fact that we can still continue to read the word of the Lord. And that's why, and I mentioned this in the beginning, you're in the middle of reading and you just may want to stop and say, oh, God. Lord, I love you. Lord, I want to worship you. Lord, I want to thank you for enlightening my eyes and revealing to me your special revelation, that I love your word. Anyway, just use your imagination. And I was just praying right then. The Lord knew it. I was just, you don't mind if I pray in front of you once in a while? I mean, this is a church. We can do that. So uh, it's a great thing to have a little spell, so to speak, where we are just taken aback and we just have to say, oh, God, your, your word is wonderful. More to be desired than gold. Moreover, by them, this is verse 11, is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, I want us to take just a little bit of time to uh, consider this final part, which has to do with the witness within us, our response we have all this natural revelation. We have special revelation on top of that. What are you going to do with it? And that's what David poetically describes uh, here. This is just a review here. The heavens are the dominating influence of the sun. Special revelation reveals God's. And then our response, confession of sin and a desire to be accepted by the Lord. Look at what David says here in verse number 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. If I could paraphrase this, and I don't know the version that you're reading may paraphrase it in a different way, but it's kind of like David is poetically asking here. Do any of us really know how bad we are? Who can know his errors? Uh, some of the commentators, I think Calvin was one, who said this really has to do with sins of ignorance. I mean, there's ways that we offend God in His holiness, and it's because we really don't understand the magnitude of the holiness of God. That's why people take it lightly. That's why people can say disrespectful, uh, 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 profane, even blasphemous things concerning the holiness of God. We don't know how awesome and glorious He is. So therefore... We don't know how bad we are. And when we're confronted with His holiness, like Isaiah, you remember Isaiah chapter number 6? 
I saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple, and it was so glorious. What did Isaiah say? Whoa, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Woe is me. That's what we say when we're confronted with the holiness and presence of God. That's what, that's what Peter said. And they were just fishing. And Jesus allowed a bunch of fish to go in a net. Peter knew, I'm in the presence of holiness. What did Peter say? Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. This is what we do. This is a proper response. You say, I don't like feeling bad. I want to be up. Yeah, everybody wants to be up. It's saccharine of the spirit. It's, 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 it's cheap. It's better to be broken. You know, the scripture tells us, Isaiah, that uh, of those of a humble and contrite spirit. Well, what is it that makes you humble and contrite? Well, when you're exposed to the special revelation of the Lord, all these things, when your eyes have been enlightened, then you're going to ask yourself like David does, who can understand his errors? Do I really know how bad I am? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Amen. You know, this is, uh, now, we're having special services today, but we're still going to do community today, right? Isn't that right, Tom? We're, we're still having communion. And uh, I'm going to tell you something. It's not a random thing that this psalm happened to fall on the day that we're going to celebrate communion. Because the things that David mentions here are things that we should consider every time before we partake of the Lord's Supper. The bread and the grape juice signifying his body and his blood. This is a very serious thing. The Apostle Paul makes it sound very serious. Say, well, what are you doing linking it with this? Well, we should be praying, Lord, cleanse me from my errors. I mean, I don't even know how bad I am. And then there's verse 13. This is really the one that gets to me. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Here's another quote from Calvin, I think you'll like, or maybe it will bother you. Either way, it's good. Here's what Calvin said, quote, about verse 13. By presumptuous sins, he means known and evident transgressions, accompanied with proud contempt and obstinacy. By the word keep back, he intimates that such is the natural propensity of the flesh to sin, that even the saints themselves would immediately break forth or rush headlong into it did not God, by his own guardianship and protection, keep them back? That's heavy. What he says there about presumptuous sins being uh, those of proud contempt and obstinacy is a universal opinion of all commentators across the board. They think that these are some of the worst sins because we do it in a cold-blooded, premeditated way. Now, lawyers will tell you that the worst kind of crimes, check me on this, the lawyers, the worst kind of crimes, I wish Chris were here, Chris could team up with the other lawyers. Don't you have a harder time getting away with cold-blooded, premeditated? You thought about it, you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. And there are sins that are just like that. Who of us, unless there's something wrong with our mental capacity, has ever committed a sin that we didn't know what we were doing when we were going into it. Now, as a Christian, we're going to be held more accountable. And this is a very, very serious thing. So when David prays here, Lord, keep me back from presumptuous sins, we take this, we take a 3,000-year leap from 1,000 years B.C. when he wrote this all the way to where we're living today, and this prayer is still as efficacious, it's just as effective for us to say, Lord, keep me back from presumptuous sins. The type of sins that I make knowing that I'm, what I'm doing when I'm getting into it, and I just presume that you're going to be there to forgive me. What a disgraceful... Uh, I'm trying to find a really offensive word. What a, what, a, what a horrible way to treat a loving, forgiving Savior. Now listen, if Jesus commands us to forgive when we become Christians. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent means change your mind, turn around, start going the other way. Why is it that after a while when we're Christians and we're enjoying the grace of God, we think we can get away with stuff? Don't we? People are like that. We are rotten from the inside out. Now, this is the verse 
that we quote all the time. First John 1 and 9. Well, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And he is. However, I have a couple of other verses here. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight verses that we can briefly review in 1 John, which reveals to us that just the fact that we have the love of God and his patience and willingness to forgive us, what makes us think that we can presumptuously sin and just go to 1 John 1, 9? Is it, ah, it's all right. He's got it. 1 John 1, 9. We all pray it all the time. Actually, we should back up and just, I'm, I, I'm reading in 1 John Starting in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not tell the truth. I should have put that one up there too. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth, Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now that's true. None of us can say we have no sin. It's too late. We're already documented. We're all ex-cons. We got a record. <laughs> Every one of us. <laughs> we've been convicted. We've been found guilty. However, by God's grace, we've been forgiven. And for this ongoing forgiveness, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let's read on. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's the next verse we have? 15 through 17. This is still chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. When I was in seminary, and I was able to read Greek. I was reading through this epistle in Greek, and I got to that verse number 17. And there's something about forever, tes aeon, aeon. It, it, when it hit, it hit me, I got goosebumps. I started to shake. You know, the, the whole concept of eternity is, again, it's beyond our ability. We're not wired to fully comprehend eternity, but it's what we prepare for, right? All right, we're still reading about, you see, the reason why I have these mentioned, we're still talking about presumptuous sins, and we're still talking about how people will milk chapter one, verse, I'll milk it for all it's worth. Well, we have a, we confess our sins to me, as if this is our get-out-of-jail-free card. It's our pass. You can do whatever you want. Don't worry if we confess that he forgives us. When we have all these other verses, and we've just read the first part, look at chapter four, verse four. The only reason I'm mentioning this is because we, as a people, and people do this, we take sin too lightly, and we sin presumptuously. And David is saying in the 19th Psalm, don't do it. He's saying, Lord, keep me back from those presumptuous sins. Look at chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. He's talking about overcoming the sinful society, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Isn't that an encouraging statement? It is. Just a couple more. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. See, these are all things which, which kind of seem to go against the notion that we can presumptuously sin. Don't worry. As long as, I mean, God's going to hold us accountable because He's forgiven us in the first place. If you got busted for speeding... And you went before the judge, and the judge said, Garland, I'm going to let you go. And next week, you came back, and you were speeding faster than the first time. And you said, Your Honor, come on, man, you let me go last week. How about again? Do you think the judge would say, All right, okay, sure, go ahead, go ahead. You confessed it, I'll forgive you. I don't think judges operate like that. But yet we take God's grace for granted. It's a very disrespectful a disgusting way that we take advantage of it, thinking, I can do whatever I want because I'm a Christian, and his blood covers me from everything. I wouldn't take that chance if I were you. That's all I'm saying. Verse 2, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. Look at what it says. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. If you've got faith, you should be overcoming the world. Look at verse 18. This is 1 John chapter 5. And we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. 
But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Isn't that a precious promise? And one more in verse number 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So, I think that's all I have to say about that. Like Forrest Gump said. That's all I have to say about that. Yes, Tom. There sure is. Seven stars that you put in your Bible? Yes, bang, 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 bang. Uh -huh. down the whole thing. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. I'm a, I'm a worry wart by nature. Uh -huh. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him every anything we ask because we obey his Right. And do what pleases him. Amen. This is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Amen. You know, this epistle, only five chapters, will only take you ten minutes to read through. And uh, you should do it. Sit through, read the whole epistle, and just let the word of the Lord speak to you. And there will be different things that the Lord will encourage you with along the way, and you'll get a lot out of it. But here, where we're at in the 19th Psalm, we're just dealing with the last couple of verses where he's talking about presumptuous sins. You know, if we're honest, we, we have no choice in his presence. We know that we're about to do something wrong, and that's just what... We're not supposed to do. Then he says, we're not finished yet. We just want to mention another thing here. He says, let them not have dominion over me. Boy, there's been a lot of good commentary on this that we don't have time to get into. Man, we could have a whole Sunday school lesson just on let not those presumptuous sins have dominion over me. It's a self-induced enslavement. And we get ourselves in this trouble. And then David said, by the way, Calvin had some really good insight on this also about how uh, presumptuous sins lead us to a, uh, uh, an enslavement where because we think we get away with this stuff and we keep on doing more, the next thing you know, you're in deeper than you want to be. Somebody has said, and I'm trying to think, I hope I can get this straight, sin will cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more. Did I say that first? Okay. It'll cost you more. It'll keep you longer. And there's one more. Well, it's not good, whatever that other one is. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll take you further than you want to go. I told you it was bad. It's bad. That's what, that's what the psalmist is talking about here when he says that, that these presumptuous, let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent of, now I'm reading the old King James, it says the great transgression, but the scholars and other translations, in fact the one you're reading, it just may say it'll keep me from great transgression. I don't want to do anything that is a great transgression. And by my willful sinning, taking God's grace for granted, and ignoring all these other things, it's just not a very nice way to treat our Heavenly Father. Then he closes with this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. What a way to close this fantastic, epic poetry that he gives us here. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. We all know how hard it is to control the words of our mouth. Can you say it? <laughs> Maybe it's just me. Does anybody else here have a problem keeping your mouth shut? Oh, you say things, and as soon as you say it, I wish I could take that back. But it's too late. She already heard it. <laughs> that may apply in some interpersonal situations. You may say to yourself, he already heard it. But once those words are out, you can't take them back. That's really scary. 
when that happens. Yes. <laughs> Get in trouble just for what you're thinking. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. No, you don't. <laughs> well, they usually do. That's the problem. But David prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. If we ever feel that we're tempted and we're at the precipice of sinning presumptuously, we're doing something, we know that it's wrong, we know that we're not supposed to be doing it. And the reason why I said before, let me just conclude this with this being Communion Sunday. How dare we take solemnly, spiritually, in a holy convocation, take the Lord's table when we know we're doing something, and this could be a habitual sin, I don't know. See, the good thing about me, I don't know you personally. I'm, I have no idea what's going on in your life, so I can talk like this. This is between you and the Lord. If you've got something going on and the Holy Spirit gets next to you, well, you better deal with it. You don't want to just keep dulling yourself and say, ah, later, later, later. The next thing you know, you'll be scarred. The Apostle Paul talked about a scarred conscience. You know what happens if you get a scar on your skin, your nerve endings are killed and you're insensitive to touch. It's worse when that happens to your conscience. And over a period of taking advantage of God's grace, your conscience is seared and the Holy Spirit can't even touch you anymore. One more illustration. This is the third one more illustration that we're finally going to stop. You know, when people first get saved, their conscience is like a triangle inside of their heart with sharp points. Now, maybe you could think back of when you just became a Christian and the slightest thing you did, ah, this thing would shake inside and you'd be pricked by the points. Ah, God, I'm sorry. Oh, I almost said that. Lord, I'm sorry. That's when we're fresh and we're new. But what happens over a period of time is these points get worn off. I can't believe I can't get that sugar. I'm sweating. I'm nervous. The points get worn off to where this thing moves around a little bit and it doesn't bother us so much. Ah, it's all right. I confess that he forgives me. Eh, it's all good. Don't take so much advantage. And of course, your heart can become so insensitive that uh, it even gets rounder than that. Next thing you know, this thing goes, just spinning around. You don't feel anything. Now, this is the jaded pastor talking with 40 years plus experience. I've seen this happen to people. At first, they're very sensitive. But after a while, it's, ah, it's not such a big deal. And the next thing you know, they're just uh, spinning, going crazy. Father, Lord, I pray you'd help us to take your word serious. Never to live in the realm of presumptuous sin, especially, Lord, as we're supposed to examine our hearts today in this communion service. I pray, Father, we would take your warning seriously and that we would live lives that are honoring to you. And we ask you this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.